with that, let's get into Exodus chapter 15. We are into part two of our study. We started this new series last week talking about who is God. And that's what we're going to be talking about in part two. But what an, what an incredible question. Who is God? We all want to know that. We all want to grab a hold of more of that. And, and I told you last week that, that this is this section in between the parting of the Red Sea or in between the deliverance of, of the children of Israel from Egypt and Mount Sinai where the people are headed. There are six events and one song that God uses to teach his people who he is. And where we're at this morning, we're at that one song that is chock full of theology. It is theocentric. It's God-centered. It's all about who God is. Well, before we get to our question, who is God? I want to open up with a couple different questions first. Questions like this. Like, what do you do when you have an amazing situation happen to you? How do you respond? Well, let's say you're on a road trip. Let's say you're driving and you're coming around a corner and you know maybe it's a little too fast and you're thinking, uh-oh, and it was slick. Let's say there was, there was crickets across the road and so it was really slick. You should have slowed down, but you didn't. And now you're sliding and you should go off the road, but you don't. What do you say? What comes out of your mouth? What do you, how do you respond? I'm like, wow, Lord, thank you. Thank you, God. That was amazing. You saved me, Lord. What about this one? What do you say after a miracle takes place before your eyes? Let's say you're invited over to somebody's house. You're invited by the family to pray for somebody who has just been discharged from the hospital. There's nothing more they can do for them. They've been sent home to die. They're there because it's time for them to go meet Jesus. And so you're brought over there to pray for them. And you show up and you can clearly see this person has not eaten for a long time. They haven't opened their eyes. This, this looks like it's it, right? You're there to pray, pray for the family, offer comfort because they're, they're going to meet with Jesus. But you start praying for them and you're praying. You get done and that person opens up their eyes, sits up straight, asks for some food, and then goes on and lives a few more years before they go to be with Jesus. How do you respond? That's a miracle. God still does things like that. Or what about this one? Let's say you're standing in between a fortified city and an impassable sea. Now, it's not quite up a creek without a paddle, but it's near the sea without a boat. It's a pickle, right? There's no way of escape. And to make matters worse, remember, an army is barreling down against you. Pharaoh and his chariots and his captains, and you don't have any weapons. You don't have any military strategy. You don't have anything except the Lord your God who's going to fight and deliver you. And as the situation takes place, you see God, his cloud moves from in front of you to behind you to be a hedge of protection between you and that impending enemy. And then he splits, he parts the Red Sea so you can pass over on dry ground and you're standing there amazed that you've been delivered. And then you see those walls of waves that have been mounted up like a heap, they come crashing down and swallow up Pharaoh and that entire army. God single-handedly defeats all of your foes in one fell swoop. How do you respond to that? What do you say? Well, that's what Exodus chapter 15 is all about. These first 21 verses in Exodus chapter 15 are that song that Moses and all the children of Israel are going to sing as a response to what God did in delivering them through that Red Sea. 
So I want you to just engage with that. What do saved people do? Listen, church, saved people sing. If you're an artist and you're by this situation, what's an artist going to do? An artist wants to paint a picture of what that looked like, and then that can be beautiful as they're trying to encapsulate what's going on. What does a writer want to do? A writer wants to, wants to write a poem or write a book or write some encouraging little stanza about this. But what do worshipers of God do? They sing. The saved sing. They rejoice. It doesn't matter if you don't have a good voice, you sing because you have a good God, an amazing God who has saved you and delivered you and the right response is to lift your voice in praise, worship, adoration, thankfulness, whatever you want to call it, you're praising God for what he has done and who he is. And that's exactly what we're going to see here. Immediately after that great deliverance, we're going to see the word then, then, directly connected. The people are going to sing. Now, this is the first song we have recorded in our Bibles, but this is not the last song. There are songs all over, all the way into the book of Revelation. There are songs that get sang by the redeemed who are praising God for what he has done. And so I want you to kind of think about, think about that. We, we sometimes think about the narrative of our lives like, like a movie or maybe like a book, like a, like a living letter. And so we kind of think about, here's this drama, here's this scene, one scene to another. I want you to think about this. It's not just a normal movie. You know what it is? It's a musical Yes, our lives are also a musical, and there are songs to be sung, and Christians, we are the ones who get to sing along. You might have thought, like, I don't know that I really want to sing. Oh, you are to sing. Why? Because God has redeemed you. So think about this as we kind of go through this whole aspect. Now, some are thinking, why, why or how is this song going to tie into our series, Who is God? Well, I mentioned at the beginning, this song is all about who God is. The hardest part about this study was actually narrowing it down to only 10 answers to who God is. I had five honorable mentions, but I thought, oh, this is going to take way too long. I got to narrow this down to 10. So 10 points, we're going to see 10 answers to the question to who God is. And, and remember, this is all going to be coming from the mouths of I witnesses, those people who just saw and experienced what God has done for them. So let's do this. We're going to read the entire 21 verses. We're going to read it all at once, and then we're going to go back and point out those 10 things. So sit back, grab your Bibles, read these 21 verses with me. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath 
it consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, this is Pharaoh, the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw the sword. My hand shall destroy them, that says the enemy. But you, God, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Now that's an incredible song. And it is so rich with truth about who God is from the lips of the people who are getting to know him, who are watching God reveal himself to them. I want you to hold on to the entire study. This is a testimony from eyewitnesses to what God has done, telling us here today for all generations, this is who God is. Now there's a couple things I want to talk about as a whole here. I want to talk about this song just as a whole before we get into these 10 points. First, I want you to see that everybody is singing. Everybody has been redeemed. Everybody is singing. Moses, all the children of Israel, the men and the women. I even imagine those little infants who can barely talk. They're humming along some bars with whatever capacity they can understand. But check this part out. At the end of the song, Miriam, it says, she answered with all the women. So she brings out the timbrels, some instruments. She's, they're dancing, they're singing, they're praising the Lord. But it says, she answered. And what I love about this is this is like one of those echo songs that you used to hear in church sometimes. Dave, John, Jen, Lexi, remember those echo songs? I love those echo songs, right? Where the men say, you are holy. And the women say, you are holy. And then it just keeps going back and forth. That's kind of like what 
what those are. It's biblical, right? We're seeing that. She answers. Now, it's going to record just one line from Miriam, but I get the idea. She sings the whole song. The women repeat the entire song. Why, I could, have, I could sing it a thousand times, right? Because it's so beautiful, but that's what's going on here. But there's other things that I want to point out just briefly. I want you to notice that, that here Moses, here Aaron, not one time in this song do they spend a line even mentioning the role that God called them to do. You notice that this song is not about them. This song is all about God. You want to write a good worship song? Make sure it's all about God. Never one time is Moses like, God, thank you for using me as an instrument. God, thank you for giving me the faith. That's all great, and that's part of his testimony, but that doesn't need to be in the song. A worship song is all about God. In fact, the first five verses of this song, if you kind of could divide it into two parts, the first five verses, it's all about what God has done. God, here's what you've done. I'm telling you back. God loves when we do that, by the way. I'm singing back to you about what you did. And then the, the, from verse six on to the rest of the song, it's all about who he is. It's actually directed towards him. So they sing about who he is, what he's done, and then they direct the very song to his heart. They say, your right hand, Lord, directly to you. You have done this, Lord, directly to you. The rhetorical question, who is like you, O Lord? Think about all those times, O Lord, O Lord. They're singing to him, which means God is showing them he wants a relationship when they're worshiping, nobody here is thinking. I think my, my lyrics, my words that I'm singing are just bouncing off the ceiling or somehow getting lost in the clouds. Nobody thought that. When they're worshiping the Lord their God, they know he's hearing and receiving as a pleasant aroma being lifted up to him. Believe that, Christians. When you're worshiping the Lord your God, he is listening and he is soaking it in. So this song's all about who God is, what he has done, and it's directed directly towards them. Now it starts by this kind of victorious battle tone. God has triumphed gloriously. That's the the first kind of line. God has triumphed gloriously. And what it's meaning as he's speaking about, this is kind of the final outcome of the victory God has won from Egypt and over the Egyptians. And from the people's perspective, if there was any debate, if Pharaoh was kind of winning a few battles here and there, or if God was kind of losing some few battles, as it's all said and done, God triumphs gloriously. Pharaoh and all of his Egyptians, they're all perishing in the sea. God suffers no losses. Seriously, zero casualties come from the Lord God. He, he is glorious in his triumphant victory. And I just want you to know that is what always happens. Please hear that. For everyone who will ever fight against God, spoiler alert, he will triumph over you gloriously. Don't fight against God is the point. Don't think that you can shake your fist at God. Don't refuse to humble yourself before God. Please take that as a lesson from Pharaoh and don't do that. But that's what's going on. They're worshiping, they're singing, they're praising. It's theocentric. It means it's all about God, who he is, what he's done. Now, because of that, it teaches us a whole lot about who God is. So let's get into our 10 points. Number one, who is God? Number one is he is eternal. He is eternal. Now we're going to get that from verse one where it says, I will sing to the Lord. 
they're going to use the title, the proper name of God, L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D. That's the same name that God gave to Moses back in Exodus chapter three. When Moses says, who should I say sent me? The people are gonna say, hey, who gave you this idea to come and deliver us? Who are you working for? Who's the one who's behind everything you're doing? He says, he says tell them I am has sent you. The Lord, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Yehovah, however you wanna pronounce it. We don't have the vowels, we just have the consonants. But it's I am, and it's a term, a title, denoting the eternality of the Lord, their God. 12 times in this song alone, they're gonna say the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, 12 times. There's 21 verses in the song, which means over half the lines are using the title for the name of God, I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. I am perpetually now. I am the I am. I am the beginning and the ending. I am before the beginning and after the ending. I am, God says. And I want us just to think about how powerful that is because they just left Egypt. And Egypt has a place of a whole bunch of gods, which, remember, we're all defeated. Not a single one of those could compare to who the Lord God is. But as they leave, think about all the legends. Think about all the ideas of these created gods of Egypt that supposedly did something great, right? This God was supposed to be the God of the Nile. We've never seen him do anything, but supposedly he did. Or this God was supposed to be the creator of life. We've never seen him do anything, but supposedly he was. He he did something upon some lost historical timeline. You just need to believe it, right? That's what they thought. But that is not who the Lord God is. He has two plus million witnesses at this time who have seen what he's able to do, who he is. He is the great I am. And this song is being written and recorded and preserved for you and I Christians to see it for ourselves. He didn't do something hidden in the past like some legendary created mythical God, right? He's the great I am who has done something for everybody to see. And here is the evidence of it recorded still here today. So who is God? He's eternal. He is the great I am. We'll see later in verse three, the Lord is his name. Yahweh, I am. The I am is his name. So they're going to sing that in response to him. Point number two, it comes from verse two. Who is the Lord? He is our strength. That's what it says. He, the Lord is my strength. Israel learns that about the Lord their God right here. One of my favorite verses, it says, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but what do they learn? What happens to those who trust in horses and chariots? Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, some end up drowned in the Red Sea, right? Don't trust in those physical things to be your strength. You need to hear that again? I need to hear that again. Don't trust in the physical things to be your strength. Those things are not your strength, What is our strength? The Lord is our strength. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The Lord is our strength. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And he's revealed that to them right here. As they stand on the side of the Red Sea thinking, how did we get here? The Lord is our strength. Not a single person is saying, well, I think I kind of did something. No, you did nothing. Nobody did anything. The Lord fought for them. The Lord is their strength. Christians, I want you to hear this. This has, been, this has been really encouraging to me. Do you think God's strength was enough for the people then? It was enough, right? Do you think God's strength is enough for you now? 
It's enough. It's enough for us. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is made perfect in our weakness. See what that says? God's strength is enough. The Lord is our strength. Own that. Make that personal. The Lord is our strength. It's sufficient. We can't stand on our own. That's a reality. We can't. And we've never been asked to. We're asked to abide in Christ. We're asked to make our stand by the power of his might. We're asked to armor up and then stand, but using the strength and supply of his spirit, not on our own. The Lord is our strength. Tap into his strength and find the victory that he has for you. I need to do that again and again and again, and I will continue to need to do that again and again and again. But listen, he is strong enough. His strength is sufficient. Believe it. That's what they're testifying. That's what they're declaring. Who is the Lord? He is our strength. Point number three, also in verse two, it says, the Lord is my song. I love that one. It says, the Lord is the reason why I sing. The Lord is the reason why I ought to sing. Because God has done great things, he deserves to be praised. And I want you to see that we see songs sang for that purpose all throughout the Bible. Because God is worthy to be praised. I put some verses in in your study, guys, and I'll show a couple verses here. In the book of Job, that epic chapter where God is responding to Job. Remember, he's saying, he's saying, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And you know, Job was nowhere. But he was saying, every time I did something, do the act of creation, and everything God does is good. He says it, and it was good. And then we get to the point where we see creation is singing a song of praise for who the Lord is. Job 38 verse 7 says, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for, for joy, the Lord is their song. In Judges chapter 5, when another woman named Deborah, who is a prophetess, she's called, just like we read Miriam, is a prophetess, a woman with an unction, the power of the Holy Spirit, using them to speak the, the truth of God's word, both for the now and even foretelling. In Deborah's capacity, the ability to be a judge over God's people during that time in the book of Judges. And Miriam, to lead the people in worship. We're seeing that right here. But in Judges chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, Deborah says, When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Then she says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why? Because the Lord is their song. King David, a man after God's own heart, after God brings about a deliverance in his life, one of the many, David has many times where God comes through for him. But he says in, in Psalm 40, he says, he says, you've, you've put my feet back upon the rock. You've brought me out of the pit. You've established my steps. And then Psalm 40 verse three, he says, and he has put a new song in my mouth. What's the title of that song? Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear, and trust in the Lord. But the Lord is my song. Church, brothers, sisters, we're seeing this pattern all over. Saved people sing. People who find themselves delivered by God sing in response to him. That is the the way a worshiper of God responds to what he has done in our lives. The Lord acted, the Lord delivered, and the people respond by lifting up their voices. And I'm telling you, for all of us in Christ, for all of us who can be in Christ reaching out and taking hold of his hand stretched out to us, 
the Lord becomes our song. We can sing to him because we've been saved, we've been delivered, we've been set free from the bondage of sin. We can sing to him because our names are written in the book of life. We can sing to him because we have been set free. Jesus has transformed our lives. We are no longer who we used to be because Jesus is everything he claims to be. We can rejoice. I never used to sing a whole lot. But when the Lord grabbed a hold of my heart and transformed my life when I put my faith in him, I sing all the time because he is the song in my heart. Thankfulness and gratefulness and praise is just the melody that is in my heart. I sing all the time. I love to hear my kids. My daughter loves to sing. My son doesn't necessarily like to sing, but he hums all the time because he has a song in his heart. The Lord is our song. And I love that. I love that there's a a melody that is coming out. I love and I long for when we can get together again in a corporate capacity and worship the Lord our God. That is the part I think I miss the most. I miss being able to hear all of our voices projecting heavenward towards the Lord our God. I love that. I long for that. I know God loves that and he receives it wherever we are. But there is something special about a corporate gathering of worship. But why? The Lord is our song. We want to sing to him. We want to sing about him. We want to praise him for what he has done, for who he is. And that's what the people are doing here. So who is God? He is our song. Point number four, still in verse two, the Lord is my salvation. Now we talked about this in much greater detail last week, but it's so good and it's so needed and it's so true. We need to repeat it because here it is again. The Lord is my salvation. But I want you to notice the personal pronouns that are used here. The only thing Moses wants to be said about himself is that this God is his God. It's personal. He is my God. He is my strength. He is my song. He's my salvation. He is my God. And I love that because it's personal. It has to be made personal. We can have an understanding that God is strong. You can have an understanding that God is to be praised. You can have an acceptance that God offers salvation, but there needs to be a transition where you make it yours, where you say, I'm receiving this for myself. I'm surrendering my life and I'm putting my faith and my trust in who the Lord is. He is my salvation. He is my God. And that's what this song is doing. That's what is being acknowledged here. And that's what it's supposed to be for all of us. That is who Jesus is. When we think about God is salvation, we can say this salvation has a name and his name is Jesus. And it so happens, Yeshua, Jesus, means I am salvation. So we say, is Jesus my strength? I hope that he is. Is Jesus my song? I hope that he is. Is Jesus my salvation? And my God, listen, I hope that he is. That's what we want you to be able to say. It has to be personal for you, not vicarious through another. So who is God? He is salvation. Point number five, we're still here in verse two. I told you this was hard, right? We're still, we're point five now, still in verse two. Well, well, enough about my problems. Here's, here's point five. Point five is God is a promise keeper. Who is God? He is a keeper of promises. Where do we get that? The end of verse two, the song says, my father's God and I will exalt him. 
when Moses sings this, when the children of Israel sing this, they are acknowledging that this God is the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could even throw in Amram, Moses' biological father, who feared the Lord and hid him with his wife, Jochebed, as we read earlier in the study. He's the Lord. He's the God of their fathers. But just think about this. God made a promise to those fathers that they would be a great nation, that they would have descendants as numerous as the sky. Each time that blessing, that promise is passed down from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, then, then to Joseph, and then to the children of Israel. But listen, now these people are here, set free from Egypt, on their way to the promised land. Why? Because God promised. Because God is a promise keeper. We can be convinced of that. What God promises, he keeps. He keeps his word. Not a single word that the Lord has has spoken will ever fail to come to pass. Not a jot, not a tittle, not a word will fail to come to pass of all that is written and recorded here. Why? Because God is faithful, eternally faithful. He is a promise keeper. I want you to take these things and make them personal. Apply them to your life. Regardless of what has ever happened in your life, when it comes to somebody who maybe has made a promise to you and not kept them, please do not interject that situation upon God. God is eternally faithful. He is a promise keeper. When he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, I will be with you to the ends of the age, he promised and he is eternally faithful. When things kind of seem weird and it's not going the way that you think it should go, but he promised, I will build my church. I will do it. He promised. I don't need to doubt it. I don't need to question it. He promised. When he says, my word will not return void, but it will always accomplish what I sent forth it to accomplish, he promised. And all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. He promised. Listen, if it's written here and it's recorded here, we can grab a hold of it and we can apply it to our lives. Why? Because he's a promise-keeping God. That's what Moses is saying. That's what they're rejoicing in. God is faithful. Case in point, exactly what we see right here. God delivering his people with his mighty outstretched hand for no other reason than because he promised. So he's a promise keeper. Point number six, moving into verse three. Whoa, we're gaining some some ground now. Verse three, it says, the Lord is a man of war. Point six, the Lord is a warrior. Now, when it says he's a man of war here, this is what's called an anthropomorphism. And what that means is it's expressing a human characteristic and applying it to God to help us understand what is being conveyed here. God is not a man. God is not literally a man of war, but it's saying he is like a mighty man of valor. He is like a mighty warrior, but the difference is he's fierce, he's just, and listen, he's undefeated. Right, he's, he's like that and then times, times a thousand more, right? He's, he's the Lord God. But it's making the point that God is a man of war. God is mighty in battle. And remember, this song is being sung right after God has single-handedly defeated Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian army, every form of military might they could muster on that day. God single-handedly wiped them all out. Because he's a mighty man of war, a mighty warrior. Now, for some of us, that may not be the most comforting thought as we come to understanding God. Who is God? He's a mighty warrior. He's a man of war. 
Listen, I want you to know, we'd want God no other way. We don't want to take his word and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to soften that. I'm not going to do that. This is, what, this is who God is. But we'd want God no other way. Listen to this. How many times have you heard the question asked, why does God allow evil in the world? Why does God allow injustice? Why do horrible things happen? in this world. People say, well, God has a lot to answer for. If God is so good and God is so loving and God is so holy and just, why are these these things happening? It's as if God doesn't care. Listen, it is not a matter of if. He cares. It's a matter of when in his divine timing, he's going to judge it perfectly and effectively. Listen, the answer is God is a man of war. And he will right every wrong and make every person pay for what they have done. Listen, this is so clear. And in the book of Exodus, this is our example. In God's perfect timing, in God's perfectly just and righteous way, he will repay every single evil. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Now, some of us, we could take a step back and say, it looked like for a time Pharaoh got away with things. It looked like for a time that Pharaoh, at his own discretion and his own command, he was able to oppress the children of Israel. He was able to, to oppress the people of God. They're killing the babies. They're killing those, those male infant children. They're oppressing them and beating them. And you're, you kind of think, it looks like Pharaoh's getting away with it. You're saying, well, what's God going to do? Well, when, in his perfect timing, nobody here who's studying the book of Exodus with us is is able to say, Pharaoh got away with anything. Seriously, Pharaoh didn't get away with anything, did he? He paid for what his life owed. He paid for the vengeance that he he concocted from God himself. Nobody gets away with anything. It it may seem like that for a time, but the point is God's timing is not our timing. It's a whole lot better. It's perfect. And so there may seem like a time, like things are happening and God isn't moving, but listen, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. Everybody will be brought into account. Everything will be brought before the Lord. Nobody gets away with anything. God is a man of war and he wages war with divine authority and when God's justice is administered, sometimes through war, it is never for selfish or arrogant, selfish, ambitious reasons like human wars are waged sometimes. It is perfectly and justly and righteous because that is consistent with the character of who God is. That's what happens. God does this. And for Moses, he's praising God for this. The people are praising God for this, which means you and I, we can praise God for this as well. Think about another practical example. If God wasn't like this, how hard would it be to take comfort when God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay? When he comes to us and says, hey, I don't want you to carry that. I don't want you to think you can make things right in your own hands. The wrath of man will never produce the righteousness of God. So I want you to trust me with that. I want you to trust me. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. What if God never repaid? Would we ever take comfort in that situation? Would we ever trust him? He does repay. He will right every wrong. He will repay every single evil. He will give everybody the opportunity to give an account. He is a righteous judge. He is a man of war. That's a part of his character. So we want to praise him for that and see what he says here. So that's point number six. God is a mighty warrior. Point number seven is, it comes from verse six here, and it says, God is all powerful. 
It means that he is omnipotent. He's unlimited in power. No person, no king, no kingdom, no army, no combination of armies, no combination of kings or kingdoms, no equation you can slice it from a human or even an angelic combination is any match for God. He alone is all powerful. He alone rules over all with a rod of iron and he will bring every single one of his enemies as a footstool underneath his feet. He is all powerful. Again, this is coming right after God just proved that single-handedly by defeating Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian army. But look at verse 6. He says, "Your the song says, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Later in verse 12, it says, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. God, you are so powerful. That's what you did. I love that there's this connection with the right hand, the righteous right hand of the Lord. I got a few more reference verses for you. Psalm 48 verse 10. It says, according to your name, O God, So is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. The righteous right hand of the Lord. One of my favorites, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The right hand of God's power. And church, as we think about the, the Christ connection here again, after Jesus clothes himself in humanity, walks out the perfect life, fulfills every law, every requirement, is completely without sin, without spot, without blemish, as the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world. And he's going to lay himself down. He's going to lay his life down. He's going to die on a cross. He's going to rise again from the grave. And then remember what happens? He ascends to heaven where he sits where? Mark chapter 16, verse 19 says, So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. When you think about the all-powerful, righteous right hand of God, I want you to think about Jesus, the one who says all things were made by him and through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Everything is subject to his power and authority. He holds all things together by the power of his word. The righteous right hand of the Lord absolutely connecting to Jesus. But look at some of these other things. In in verse 7, what else is attributed to God's awesome power? Verse 7 says, You overthrew those who rose against you. All those who overthrew you. It says, You consumed them like stubble. It's an interesting phrase. He, he, Pharaoh, remember he, he takes away the straw that was given to the, the Hebrews to make bricks. He says, you're going to have to find your own, your own stubble to be able to make these bricks. And the Lord says, I'm going to return that back upon your own heads. You know who's going to turn into stubble? You are, Pharaoh, and all of your men. He's consumed them like stubble. Verse 8 says, from the blast of your nostrils, you divided the waters of the sea. Do you know, look at how practical it is. Do you know how hard it was for God to part the Red Sea? It was like an exhale for you and I. How hard is it to exhale? Like it's like the easiest thing to do, right? It's hard sometimes to take an inhale if you're at elevation, but exhaling is easy. That's all God needs to do. To part the waters of the sea is exhale, a blast from his nostrils. That's how powerful he is. Verse nine tells us of all the things that Pharaoh had purposed in his heart, all the things that Pharaoh said he was going to do against the Lord. How does God have to respond? He doesn't even need to stand up and leave his throne for this one. 
all he does is says, you blew your wind. You used the sea you created and you swallowed him all up. Listen, creation bows to the creator. It always has, it always will, and, and to the creator alone. So God just speaks, God just breathes, God just moves, and creation responds. He's that powerful. He's awesome in power, and the word of God is just revealing to us who he is. Even when it seems like he isn't, even when it seems like things aren't happening, we let the word of God be our lamp and our compass and our anchor. We let the word of God be true and everything contrary to it a lie. God is all powerful and he may be waiting in his timing to do something, but as we talked about before, with purpose. God is not slack. God is not twiddling his thumbs, bored. God is purposeful and everything he's doing, he's purposeful and if he's waiting, it's for divine purpose. So God is awesome awesome in power. Point number eight, moving down to verse 11. Who is the Lord? The Lord alone is God. The rhetorical question gets asked, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? The Lord alone is God. He is unique. He is completely set apart. He's in a category all by himself. He is incomparable. He is set above. He is perfectly glorious, gloriously holy. Think about that, right? When we think of the holiness of God, he's, he's holy, holy, holy. But then think about that. He's also gloriously holy, as if the holiness of God didn't invoke an, an enough reverence in our hearts. This song, motivated by the Holy Spirit, says he's also gloriously holy. That just, it's beyond comprehension, which is about right because he approached, he, he's, he lives in, in approachable, dwells in, a, in unapproachable light. He's gloriously holy. Nobody else could be described as even holy or holy, let alone holy, 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 let alone gloriously holy. So to see God in this light, to see him in this glory, what is the response? It's to worship him. It's to lift your voice and sing and say, God, you're awesome. You're holy. You're glorious. You're magnificent. You're powerful. Whatever other descriptive adjectives you want to come up with, if they're directed towards God, they're, they're deserving. They're adequate. In fact, they're kind of inadequate, but they're at least the right start because God is that amazing. He alone is God. He alone is worthy to be praised. There's none like him in all the earth. Point number nine, coming from verse 13. Who is God? God is love. God is love. It's, it's impossible to have a list like this and start talking about some of the attributes of God and not have this one in here. God is love. We get this from, from verse 13. In the New King James Version, what I'm, reading, what I'm reading from, it says, you, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. But in, in other translations, that word for in your mercy, it is in your unfailing love. And that Hebrew word is translated elsewhere in the Bible. It can be translated as goodness, in your goodness, God, in your kindness, God, in your mercy, God, or in your unfailing love. And I love all of those. They're all characteristics of God. So, but you can pick whatever one you want, but I love this unfailing love. God is love. That is a defining characteristic of who he is. Yes, he promised, and yes, he's keeping his promise, but why did he promise? Because he's love. Because he loves his people. He wants to have a relationship with his people. So he makes a promise. He keeps a promise. He fulfills everything. But it, it, was, it was not just a feeling. This love that is being described here, when we think of God as love, don't think of it as like, I feel a euphoria towards my people. 
I feel like an increased heart rate. I kind of feel like I've got a little bit of a dry mouth or a heart that's a little twitter-pated. I'm thinking, I love them. Listen, that, that's good. And that kind of love is, is kind of at the beginning, if you will. That love will get you to your wedding day, but that is not the kind of love that's going to get you 50 years of marriage. There has to be a greater form of love that is being depicted from God himself, and we see it right here. It's love in the form of a decision being made. It's God coming and making a choice saying, I will love them. I will. It's part of my decision, my character. I will love them. It's not just I feel, it's I will. I'm going to do this. And that's the heart of God. That's what he's seeing here. I will show them my love publicly. I will identify myself through my love towards them. I will do this because they will be called the redeemed of God. I'm going to stretch out my hand. I will do it. I'm going to redeem them. And then even after the dust of deliverance settles, even after that kind of beginning part, it's not a feeling because God is still here to lead them and to guide them where? To his holy habitation, to the place where he wants them to be, where? With him. To the place where he's going to say, this is my land that I'm giving to you. This is where I'm going to call the city of the king. Speaking of Jerusalem, the place where he's going to, it's to dwell with them. Think about for us here today, it's still the same thing God does for us as Christians. He guides us and he leads us like a shepherd. Where? To his holy habitation. He says, where where I'm going, you're not going to come now, but where I go, I'm going to go make a place for you because where I am, there I want you to be as well. A place that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We Christians, we are heading to his holy habitation to be with him forever. That's what he wants. That's this marriage picture, this relationship that we see from the Lord, our God. But it's based upon his love. Before the law is given at Sinai, the love of God is demonstrated here. I keep wanting to point some of those things out because it's, it's, not, it's not the law that comes first. It's the love of God that's come first. And there's a pattern all the way throughout the Bible. Jesus He shows that same pattern to us. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were unloving towards God, in rebellion, in darkness, we were darkness, Paul says. But yet Christ says, I will love them. I will show the greatest act of love. No love is greater than this than the one who will lay his life down for his friends. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we're seeing right here. That's what God has done to redeem them. A beautiful type and a shadow and a picture of what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for his people and what are they doing they are singing his praises so we're seeing that again point number 10 our last point here comes from verse 18 and it's the lord god is king verse 18 says the lord shall reign forever and ever the lord god is king i love that that's the last the last kind of line in this song because that's what has been settled over all of this situation pharaoh's not king the lord god is king It's all final here. There's no more battle at this point. It's settled. It's done. The Lord God is king and king forever. It's it's the exclamation point on all that God has wanted to do through them. Showing who he is through the 10 signs and wonders, the 10 plagues of Egypt, then the exclamation point of the Red Sea. And now, Lord, you shall reign forever and ever. You reign now. You will reign forever. That is who God is. But what an amazing God we have. What an amazing God that is being worshipped and praised here. What an amazing song. I encourage you to read through this a couple more times because it's so rich. It's so full of who God is. But I also want you to see that it's also very practical. 
as we take a song like this and we say, well, I want to apply it to my life, I want you to think about it like this. This song gets really practical when we take a step back and we say, what kind of God do I need? Right? If we're just trying to say, I have needs, we all have needs in our lives. If I'm going to come back and say, well, what kind of God do I need? Well, number one, I need a God who's worthy of a song like this. I need a God that every single line of a song like this can be true. And listen, there's only one that qualifies. Only the Lord God of heaven and earth qualifies to have a song like this written about him. He fulfills every stanza. He fulfills every single line. But think about it like this. I need a God who will always be with me. We need a God who will guide us and lead us and teach us. And I already pointed out, God promised that he would do that. That is who God is. We need a God who's able to save us. A God who's able to break the chains of sin. A God who's able to keep me in his righteous right hand. A God who's able to lead me through the trials of life, through the times where it seems dark, through the temptations delivering me from that. We need a God who is able and powerful and we have one, the Lord God is. We need a God who is a mighty warrior. We need a God who's able to perform perfect judgment, even delivering his wrath towards injustice to right every wrong so I can live with my eyes fixed upon him and not swelled up with bitterness and anger and my own wrath, which doesn't depict the heart of God. And we have, that's who God is. We need a God who has an everlasting, unyielding love. More than a feeling, but a choice. A decision to say, I still choose you because my son died for you and made a way. And for you in faith, you're being covered by the righteousness of Christ. I choose you and I love you and I have an unyielding eternal love towards you. I will lead you into my righteousness, into my holy habitation. We need that kind of love. I need a God. We need a God that that this is true for in every aspect. And listen, the God of the Bible the God of Moses and these people, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is that kind of God. This is just who he is. There are 10 things here that are absolutely true, but there's even more that you could put. But I want you to know that is who we have in Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ conveys all of these same things. The cross of Jesus Christ shows who God is, shows his willingness to pursue us, shows his ability to save, deliver us, and set us free. So now it comes to the point, how do we respond to him? We should respond to him this same way. We should sing. We should worship. We should let that melody come out of our hearts, praising him with worship. We should sing towards him. We should rock out in our cars. We should should have music all around us because God is worthy to be praised. Even think about writing some devotions or writing some, you might not even think, I'm, no, I'm not a musician. You don't have to be to have a song in your heart if the Lord is your song. If you know the Lord, you can have a song, but he's worthy. So I want to challenge you all. I want to challenge you to make this personal this morning. Notice that it didn't take a, a list of, of who's, who's qualified to sing. The, the first line just says, I will sing to the Lord. And I want that to be your challenge. I am going to sing to the Lord because he's worthy to be praised. Make it personal. I will sing to the Lord. He is my strength. He is my song. He's my salvation. He's my God. Make it personal. That's who Jesus wants to be, your Savior, your Lord. Surrender your life into his hands. If that's something you've already done, continue to trust him. 
especially through this time, I need to continually trust him to be about the work that he has for me. I need to continually make the decision to abide. When we think about God's agape love, his unconditional, without restraint type of love towards us, that's the kind of love that I say, God, fill me with your love so I can love you the way you love me. But make it personal. Apply these things to your life. Apply it today. Invite Jesus into your life if you do not know him. Let him be your strength, your song, your salvation, your God. Make it personal. 